You could turn with me in your Bibles, the book of Luke, chapter 22. And while you're turning there, you know, one of the most intriguing passages I think I have ever found in the entire Word of God is found in the Gospel of John, chapter 21, and verse 25. The last line of the Gospel of John, the eyewitness account of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus by uh, one of Jesus' closest disciples says this, and there are also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Amen. Well, that tells me something. It tells me that if the whole world could not contain the books that would be written, if we were going to do justice to the ministry of Jesus, it tells me that the things that we do have recorded must be incredibly special, incredibly intentional, incredibly significant in order for it to, in a sense, make the cut and show up in Scripture. But have you ever stopped to uh, realize that what is true about the Gospel of John is also true about the Bible as a whole? Every Scripture we are told in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. Literally, each and every one is inspired by God. Bottom line is this. Your Bible contains no fillers and no additives. It is 100% the Word of God, just as God would want it to be. Now, that tells me another very interesting insight. If every scripture we find in the Bible has been carefully vetted and selected and inspired by the Lord, if we see anything in the Bible, we should pay very close attention to it. But if we see something mentioned twice in the Bible, boy, that should really get our focus. I call your attention to one of those passages that does get repeated in the Word of God. It's found in the book of Proverbs, chapter 22, and verse 3. There we read this, A prudent man foresees evil and hides himself, but the simple pass on and are punished. Now, a couple chapters over, in Proverbs, chapter 27, and verse 12, we read this, A prudent man foresees evil and hides himself but the simple pass on and are punished. In other words, what the Bible is telling us here is this. There are going to come troubles in this life. No one gets the get-out-of-jail-free card from trials and tribulations in this world we live in right now. The Bible says we live in a fallen world, and if we live in a fallen world, then fallen things are going to happen. No matter how godly, no matter how spiritual, no matter how devoted you are to God, sooner or later, trouble gonna come knocking on your door. The big question is going to be, what are we gonna do when we answer it? You know, to quote the immortal philosopher John Wayne, once said, life is hard, but it's harder when you're stupid. <laughs> we don't want to fall into that category, do we? But you know, there is nothing more stupid, if I can use that term, than assuming that maybe you this morning are in one of those 
wonderful take a breath moments where all your ducks are in a row, where the sun is shining, where there's no problems, everything's going your way, as they sang in Oklahoma. If you are, boy, I am filled with uh, jealousy and envy about your life right now. <laughs> because let's face it, uh, those times where all our ducks are in a row tend to be the exception, not the rule. Uh, the fact of the matter is Jesus said, in this world, you will have tribulation. But fear not, for I've overcome the world. You go, Scott, I got out of bed early to come to church to hear about this. I could have figured that out all by myself. Well, yeah, but the big question is this. In this world, trouble is mandatory. But misery can be optional if we discover how God wants us to be prepared to learn how to anticipate trouble and hide ourselves in the greatest hiding place you'll ever find. You know, I, I've been uh, spending a lot of time in Psalm 27 these days. I, I, I highly recommend that you read it. If you're inclined in this direction, I would encourage you to maybe even memorize it because it has so much to say to us going through the ups and downs and the difficulties of life. And one of the things the psalmist says is this, in the day of trouble, you will hide me in your pavilion. In the secret place of your sanctuary, you will hide me. You will set me high upon a rock. I love that because the Lord does have a refuge for us. Psalm 91 says that we can find our refuge in the shadow of God's wings. Big question, what does that look like practically? How can we transfer that from the dreaded uh, nice sentiment on the internet, uh, looks good on those things on Facebook with the sunsets and the seagulls, to something that is genuine, real, powerful? How do we practically prepare for the inevitable eventuality of trials and difficulties in our life? How can we make James chapter one, count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, more than just a slogan, but a way of life. Well, this morning, we are going to continue to follow Jesus in arguably one of the greatest times of trial he faced in his earthly ministry. And, and I love following along with Jesus, especially at the end of his life. Because oftentimes when we think about Jesus, we think about the highlight moments. We think of him walking on the water or raising the dead or, or feeding the 5,000 or preaching the Sermon on the Mount. But oftentimes we forget that Jesus was no stranger to danger, as they say, and that Jesus went through the very same kind of troubles and trials and difficulties and more so than you and I will ever face. Jesus is the only one that you will talk to in this world and not have to say the words, do you know what I mean? Especially when difficulty has come your way. How did Jesus tackle tough times? How, even more importantly, did Jesus prepare his all too human group of disciples for a set of circumstances that, uh, truth be told, would be unprecedented 
in terms of heartache, in terms of pain, in terms of disappointment, in terms of uh, even, to use the words of Jesus, where the powers of darkness were having their way. Well, we're going to see that this morning as we launch into Luke chapter 22 and verse 35. There we read, and he said to them, speaking to his disciples, when I sent you without money, bag, knapsack, and sandals, did you lack anything? So they said, nothing. Then he said to them, but now he who has a money bag, let him take it, and likewise a knapsack. And he who has no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. For I say to you that that which is written must still be accomplished in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For the things concerning me have an end. So they said, Lord, look, here are two swords. And he said to them, it's enough. Now, <laughs> this is one of those passages that, quite frankly, you might skip over a bit in your personal devotions. Uh, Lord knows we as pastors have a tendency to look at this and say, oh, yeah, that's, that's very interesting, and, uh, well, well, let's get on to the good stuff. But I'd like to share with you this morning that in this particular passage of Scripture that oftentimes gets short shrift in Christian circles, we can see some principles that can cause us to be practically prepared for any kind of earthly trial that comes our way. Let's explore this for just a moment. First of all, the setting. If you were with us last week, uh, we saw a classic example of the two great tragedies in life being fulfilled. Not getting what you want and getting it. You know, how many of us, and I won't ask for a show of hands, but how many of us out there have heard about people offering testimonies about someone receiving a personal word of prophecy uh, about some crisis situation they were going through in life. Well, you know, some people say, well, I just don't think that's for today, and we have the Bible and so on. Well, I, I think that's overstating things a bit. You know, the Bible tells us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 19, do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, test all things, hold fast what is good. Does God still give gifted people in the body of Christ the ability to be able to speak for God to people about personal sets of circumstances that are coming their way in life? I don't see any evidence in the Word of God that suggests that that gift has come to an end. However, I think when we talk about personal prophecies, and you hear these testimonies about someone who said, oh, yeah, I was just there in church, and this total stranger came up to me and said, the Lord wants you to know this and this, and it just changed my life. And, you know, we find ourselves going, whoa, man, that would that, really be amazing. And, and I think when it comes to personal prophecies, there's two equal and opposite errors we tend to make. Uh, some people say, nope, can't happen, got the Bible, that's all I need. And granted, any personal prophecy that you receive from someone, you better test it according to God's Word. You better see if it lines up with the Scripture because the Holy Spirit will never speak contrary to the things He has revealed to us in the Word of God. But we do see in passages like Acts chapter 13 where the Holy Spirit does speak to His people about certain circumstantial things He wants done. In that instance, the Holy Spirit spoke to a group of believers in Antioch and said, set aside Barnabas and Paul for the ministry that I have for them. And so God can use those words of prophecy. I don't exclude that possibility. But some people will make the error of saying it can't happen. Other people make the error of saying it just happens, you know, 82 times a day. 
you know, oh, the Lord gave me a word of prophecy. I should go to uh, Costco instead of Safeway because I'll save a little money over it. I, I don't think God gives you words of prophecy like that. He gave you common sense, okay? But I do believe that God does give words of personal prophecy. Oh, man, I wish I had a word of personal prophecy. Careful, because if God does give you a word of personal prophecy, and I've received a few in my life that have really made a significant difference in my life, but understand something. It wasn't a compliment. It was like God saying, everything I'm telling you, you could figure out by reading my word. But right now, you are so thick and so spiritually hard that I got to rock your world to get you back on course. That's why God gives us these words of prophecy, I believe. He doesn't do it willy-nilly. He doesn't do it about any little and everything about your life. He expects you to use his word. He expects you to use your common sense. But he can give us a personal prophecy. Oh, man, I'd love for that to have. Careful. Because last time we were together, we saw a guy by the name of Simon Peter getting a personal prophecy that was probably a little bit more than what he bargained for. The Lord said in verse 31, Simon, Simon, Satan has indeed asked for you that he might sift you as wheat. But I prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. And he said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And he said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster shall not crow this day before you will deny three times that you know me. Now, a couple interesting aspects of that word of prophecy, right? <laughs> I don't know about you, but if the Lord gave me a word of prophecy saying, uh, Scott, Satan's got you in the crosshairs right now. He's asked to have you, to sift you like wheat. You know, quite frankly, I'd be happier just not knowing. I'd be happier just figuring it out as I went along, right? But notice something. You know, first of all, we saw last week that beautiful uh, expression, Simon, Simon. You know, it's Jesus' term of endearment. It's Jesus' way of getting our attention when we're a little full of ourselves, when we're a little distracted. It was kind of like his ways of saying, eyes up here, man. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. We saw that the process of sifting wheat was removing the unprofitable chaff from the valuable grain in processing wheat. And even though Satan would love to take negative circumstances and hard times to crush you and destroy you and discourage you, understands and we saw in the book of Job that Satan isn't all powerful. He isn't this free agent who can just do anything he wants in this world. We saw that in Job, even though Job took things very heavy, none of Job's trials and tribulations happened without passing through the hands of God first. And even though Satan wanted to use those trials and tribulations to destroy Job, instead, God used those trials and tribulations in such a way that we are still talking about Job's faith in the here and now and today. You know, an entire book of the Bible was birthed because of what Satan meant for evil God intended for good. And so we see Simon Peter receiving this prophecy. And he goes, oh, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And he said, I tell you, Peter, that the rooster shall not crow this day before you deny three times that you know me. <laughs> How'd you like to get that personal prophecy? Peter, I know you're cocky. I know you're confident. 
I know maybe your heart's in the right place, but man, your, your, your walk with me is going to collapse like a house of cards in a stiff wind before this day is over. And, you know, we saw a very interesting thing. Jesus prayed for Peter that his faith would not fail. Now, does that mean that God didn't answer Jesus' prayer? Did Peter's faith fail when he denied the Lord three times? We saw there's a real important distinction to make. Peter's faith didn't fail. His hope failed. His well-worked ideas about what Jesus was supposed to be doing in this world uh, went up like, uh, uh, you know, a, uh, in a cloud of smoke. But his faith in Jesus never failed. Why can we say that? Well, even though Peter denied Jesus three times, the last time cursing and swearing in front of a little servant girl, and then we're told in the Gospel of John that that. Uh, Jesus, when he was being moved from one of his kangaroo court trials to the other, th their eyes locked and the, the rooster crowed and Peter realized what went on and we're told he went out and wept bitterly. You know, that tells me that Peter's faith didn't fail. You know, his hope failed, but his faith didn't fail. Why can I say that? Because he was crushed. He was heartbroken over what had happened. He still believed in Jesus. He still loved Jesus. But he realized he had utterly failed Jesus. And, and the reason I point that out to you is, boy, if there's one question we get on a reason for hope and that we get as pastors on a regular basis, it's people who will come to us and say, man, I just think I've lost my salvation. I, I, I just feel like I pushed it too far. You know, how, how could God love someone like me anymore? I, I just think I've lost it. And when people say things like that to me, I always smile at them. They look kind of funny at me when I'm smiling. I said, you haven't lost your salvation. They go, well, how do you know? Well, if you really lost your salvation, you wouldn't be here talking to me. You wouldn't care, right? If Peter's faith had failed, his heart wouldn't have broken when he saw Jesus again. Oh, his faith was battered. His faith was bruised, maybe a little broken. Definitely need of some restoration. But Jesus' prayer was answered. Peter's faith didn't fail. How do we know that? Because that very same guy who denied Jesus three times proclaimed in no uncertain terms that God had raised Jesus from the dead on the day of Pentecost. In fact, he even said to the same seasoned group of political power brokers who orchestrated Jesus' crucifixion, there is salvation in no other name. For there's no other name given among men to be saved than the name of Jesus Christ. And we're told that those people looked at Peter and John and they recognized them as being uneducated and untrained men and they recognized them as having been with Jesus. You see, Peter's faith didn't fail. And guess what? If you're struggling today, if you feel like, you know, you've, you're on uh, strike two and a, a Nolan Ryan fastball's coming down the, 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 at the plate at you and, and you don't feel like you can hang on it, understand something, you haven't lost it. Because Jesus finishes what he starts. He said that the one who comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. Your hope of salvation, if you base it on your performance for God, get ready. Get ready, get ready for a life of uncertainty. Because some days you'll get it and some days you won't. Some days you'll walk your talk and other days you're going to be a holy hypocrite. But Jesus never fails. 
If I put my faith and trust in what Jesus has done for me instead of what I try to do for him, then I have amazing stability in my walk with God. Why? Because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and he always gets it right. So where's your hope? Is it your performance for God? Being a good little boy, a good little girl? Hopefully, at the end of the day, God will look upon you with favor? Or do you realize that there's nothing you can do to add to the love of God that has been lavished upon you in Christ Jesus. That's the message of grace. That's why we call the message of Jesus good news. <laughs> when Jesus died on the cross, he said, it is finished. He didn't die on the cross and look at us and say, to be continued, man, now you better keep up your end of the bargain. And if there was any other way to save us, Jesus would have done that, and we'll explore that a little bit farther in this chapter. But Peter got this spiritual wake-up call. And if you've been one of the other 10 listening to this, you probably would have had mixed emotions about that. Maybe you've been part of the crowd that would have said something to the effect of, wow, man, if Peter's going to collapse and, and, and go up and smoke, what hope do I have? Maybe others in the 10 said, yeah, it's about time the Lord took that guy down a few pegs. Kind of nice to see him get a little humble pie going on here. But the thing I love about the Lord was he was not only concerned about ministering to Simon Peter, he was also interested in ministering to the 10, aside from Simon Peter who were there, and ministering to us when tough times come. And I think that's what we get into here in verse 35. He said to them, when I sent you without money bag, knapsack, and sandals, did you lack anything? So they said, nothing. Then he said to them, but now he who has a money bag, let him take it, and likewise a knapsack. And he who has no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. For I say to you that all that is written must be accomplished in me. And he was numbered with transgressors. For the things concerning me have an end. Now, notice something here. Jesus is getting the ten ready for the fact that the other shoe is going to drop. That things are going to get incredibly intense for them very, very quickly. And notice the first thing he does to prepare his disciples for this. The first thing that God gives to us to prepare us for the rough times that are going to come is this, a word of recollection, a word of recollection. If you're taking notes, you might want to write that down. He brings up this very interesting incident that had happened in their lives. He said to them, when I sent you without money bag, knapsack, and sandals, did you lack anything? And they said, nothing. Why does Jesus start with this? Now, what he's referring to here is the incident. It's recorded in Matthew chapter 10 when Jesus sent his disciples out in pairs to, in a sense, do the impossible. Not just to share the gospel, the good news of the kingdom, with all the cities that were in Israel at that time, but he also gave them a couple of other instructions. He said that they were to heal the sick and they were to cast out demons. Now, when I look at Jesus' commission there, I go, well, you know, uh, going out and proclaiming the message of the kingdom. Yeah, I certainly could do that. You know, I could find out what the kingdom's principles were all about and the scriptures to share, and, and, and I, could, I could certainly do that. But notice it didn't stop there. Jesus said, you're also to heal the sick. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where someone who is facing, uh, staring down the barrel of maybe even a life-threatening illness has asked you to pray for them. Boy, in pastoral circles, it's an occupational hazard. 
Back before all the rules changed after COVID, we used to go into hospitals and pray for people. And boy, when you're asked to pray for somebody and they're kind of on the edge of it, they're almost like on death's door, if you will. That's an intimidating thing because it reminds you of something. It reminds you that, you know what? You're not bringing anything to this party. That unless God answers your prayer, unless he comes through for you, nothing good's gonna happen here. You know, it's, it's certainly being in over your head to say to people, I'm gonna heal you in Jesus' name, and boy, there they are healed. If God doesn't come through for you, you end up looking a little bit like a clown, right? How about dealing with the demonic? And I, I will say in my ministry as a pastor, I've had the opportunity to encounter individuals that I believe were actually demon-possessed. And uh, I'll tell you, it's an intimidating thing because demons do not find me very impressive at all. And they don't find you very impressive at all. But one of the things I've discovered in my encounters with people who are actually demon-possessed, and, and it's been very few, but but I've had this experience, is this. I don't intimidate them at all, but the name of Jesus terrifies them. And boy, if Jesus doesn't come through, when you say, in the name of Jesus, come out, you find yourself really working without a net at that point. You find yourself in a place where if God doesn't come through for you, it's all over. Now, does that sound vaguely or strangely familiar to any of you today? Have you ever had experiences in your walk with God where the Lord has put you in a place where you're in over your head? If you answer no to that question, uh, I, I've got two possible theories to explain that. Either you don't really know the Lord or you haven't walked with him very long. Because one of the things I will tell you in my experience with God is this. God is meticulous dare I even say ruthless about putting me into situations where unless the Lord saves my bacon, I'm toast. I used a breakfast analogy there for you, those of you <laughs> anticipating brunch. And you have too. Why does God do this? It's not because he enjoys watching us sweat a little bit. It's because he wants us to taste and see that he is good, that blessed is the man who puts their trust in him. Now, I'm not saying be foolish or presumptuous, but uh, let's face it, life in and of itself, you don't have to go looking for opportunities to be in over your head. They're gonna come looking for you. But when you begin to see from your own experience how God has been faithful to you in the past, a remarkable thing happens. The more outrageous the circumstance you've gone through, where God has been faithful to you in the past, the next time you face an outrageous, in over your head set of circumstances, you find yourself thinking, oh, wait a minute, this seems familiar. God, we've been down this road before, and, and I'm in a place where all I can do is trust you, but boy, I remember when I got that diagnosis. And I remember how you went before me. And I, re I remember being in that place where I didn't see how ends were going to meet. And I remember seeing that relationship falling apart, thinking there was nothing I could do about it. And you came through for me, Lord. What you've done for me in the past is a preview of what you're going to do for me in the future till I'm home with you. You see, the Lord gives us that personal, 
and practical experience of his faithfulness, not just to bail us out in a certain set of circumstances, but to get you ready for other things that are yet to come. The difference between people who grow in their trials and merely groan in their trials, I think is pretty simple. It can be summed up in one word, gratitude. Gratitude. Are you thankful for the times that God has delivered you in the past? Do you ever spend time rehearsing in your mind those times where you've got no other explanation than God intervening for you, where he came through for you in ways that you just couldn't even possibly imagine? The more you are thankful, the more the Lord writes those things on your heart. The less you're thankful, the more those things will come and they'll go and you will have another case of Monday morning amnesia and you won't even remember it. You just have to learn the lesson all over again. You know, there's a reason why in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, we are told, in everything, give thanks, for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. Now, people get into this big debate about should we be thankful for everything or thankful in everything. You can be thankful for everything, no matter how negative it is, because no matter how negative your circumstance is, it's a prime opportunity for you to experience the goodness of God. And as you experience the goodness of God, it's going to give you confidence going forward. But if you're not thankful, if you don't take the time to step back and say, oh, Lord, thank you for doing that for me, you're not going to get it. And the next time the wind blows and the waters start to rise, well, I'll tell you something. You're going to have to learn that lesson all over again. I've come to understand something. I, I try not to get angry when, say, the airline loses my bag at the airport. You know why? Because when I get angry and frustrated about that, I know the next time I go to the airport, they're going to lose my bag again. Because <laughs> God's going to want me to learn the lesson. I find myself going, you know what, Lord, I just want to learn to trust you in the midst of all this because I don't want to go through this again. Sounds a little fleshly, but what, what do you want? You're the same way, right? Learn the lesson. Be grateful. Be thankful. That's what Jesus is saying to his disciples. Did I leave you in the lurch when I put you in that set of circumstances where I sent you out and you had to work without a net, if you want to use that, that point of view? He said, no, we lack anything. Now, here's where it gets kind of strange. Verse 36, then he said to them, but now he who has a money bag, let him take it. And likewise, a knapsack. And he who has no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. For I say that the, that, that which is written to me must be accomplished in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For the things concerning me have an end. And they said, Lord, here are two swords. He said, it's enough. Now, in light of the fact that God is a God of miracles, God is a God that intervenes for his people, why does Jesus say to them, you saw how I provided for you supernaturally in the past, but you're going to have to provide for yourself practically now? Why does Jesus say this to his disciples? I don't think it was just for their benefit. I think it's for ours as well. Because in the Christian life, please understand this, in God's economy, if you need a miraculous supernatural intervention from God, you've got it. 
But if you don't need a supernatural intervention from God, don't look for it. God may have already provided your needs in some very tangible ways. And, and, and grasping that, seeing that the Lord caused his instructions to his disciples not to be this cookie-cutter, one-size-fits-all approach. Oh, well, remember when I sent you out, you know, without any kind of uh, backing? Well, don't worry about it. Now that you're going into this set of circumstances, I'm going to do the exact same thing for you. No, he's going, no, this time you're going to have to prepare. This time you're going to have to be practical about this. I, I love the fact that the Lord inclu includes this here because it guards us from a wind of doctrine that I think ends up destroying so many people in their walk with God. It's called prosperity teaching. It's the gospel, quote unquote, which is not really good news, that God always wants you to be healthy and wealthy. Wise, we can debate, but healthy and wealthy, right? It's not God's will for you to be sick. It's God's will for you to financially prosper. It's God's will. You be the head and not the tail and not the lender or the borrower. And we see these people, and boy, they get the hits on the Internet, and they get the ratings on TV, and they're the guys with the big greasy pompadour and the lucite pulpit who are telling you, you can live like a king's kid. And a king's kid doesn't have to go without. And you see this guy and the fact that he leaves here and he gets on his own personal private 737 jet to go to his next crusade. You go, wow, that's pretty cool. Seems to be working for him. Maybe I need to get me some of that. Now, here's the problem. People who buy into that doctrine need to understand a couple of things. What God promises and what he doesn't promise. Does God promise a problem-free life? No, he never does. In fact, Jesus promised us there would be problems. As we mentioned, Jesus said, in no uncertain terms, in this world you will have tribulation, but fear not, for I've overcome the world. The prosperity doctrine turns that on its head. It says if you are doing it right, if you have real biblical faith, you won't have problems in this life. Boy. You know, if that were true, man, I'd sign up for that six days a week and twice on Sunday. But it's not. And here's where things get difficult. God never promises you that you will not have problems. What does he promise? He promises us in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 5, I will never leave you and never forsake you. He doesn't say we get to get out of jail free card from trials and tribulations, but he does promise that every trial, every tribulation you go through, he's going to go through it with you. And, and the thing that I love about this time in Jesus' life that we see here in the Gospels is Jesus is going to get ripped with every almost conceivable heart-rending trial that you and I will ever face. And I love that about Jesus. Jesus is the only one you and I will ever look at and not have to say the words, do you know what I mean? Because he knows. He's been there. He understands. You know, the, the faith gospel, quote unquote, says that if you're doing it right, you have your proper faith in God, you won't have problems. But what happens when you buy into all of that and you still have problems? Well... That's where the bear trap snaps shut. And if you've been influenced by some of this thinking, if, if, if you've been seduced by all of this, you've got painful situations going on in your life, you've got hard times financially, and you start hearing this siren song 
saying, just come over to this side of things, and, and if you just name and claim and, and, and staple together a few verses out of context and, and really concentrate on them, and mm, I'm going to believe that, and it's going to come true. If you're moving in that direction, please let me warn you about something. The faith movement works as long as things are going your way. But when things aren't going your way, what happens? When the bottom still falls out. When that negative diagnosis comes, when the healing doesn't happen, what happens to your faith then? I can tell you from personal experience because I was really influenced by that kind of thinking early on in my walk with God. When you don't get healed, their default position is, well, we know our doctrine is true, but your life doesn't fit with our doctrine, so you must be the problem. Maybe you don't have faith. Maybe there's unconfessed sin in your life, brother. Well, you know, who doesn't have some of that, right? Uh, you know, well, still not getting healed, you know, the bills still aren't being paid. Oh, maybe, maybe you don't know the Lord at all. And boy, you can smell the sulfur, can't you? Because you're not still just sick. You're not still just short of money. You're not still in the situation where your relationship's blowing up. But now they've sold you this bill of goods that says not even God cares about you anymore. And that's where the faith doctrine really becomes dangerous. And sooner or later, it comes knocking on people's doors. Now, notice something else. Jesus told his disciples, right, to use very practical things as God's way of providing for them. Now he who has a money bag, let him take it. Likewise, a knapsack. He who has no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. You see... God can and does use physical things to accomplish his spiritual will within our lives. God does that. And when we fail to understand that, we get ourselves into problems. Now, does God do miracles? Does God, you know, just uh, out of the blue, just show us his mighty hand and his outstretched arm and and, you know, we have these testimonies about people who have been miraculously healed or, or just uh, had this amazing turnabout in their finances or this relationship came back online. And, and it was just no other way to explain it than God's direct divine intervention. Yes, 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 God does that. But only according to his plan, according to his will. And sometimes he will just say, I am just going to use very seemingly unspiritual things, seemingly very physical things, to accomplish the very same thing. Consider this study in contrast. In Acts chapter 19 and verse 11, we are told that in the ministry of the Apostle Paul, he at this point was doing some very unusual miracles. It said that the Lord worked various signs, unusual signs, through the ministry of Paul, including taking his apron and his sweatbands that he used in his tent-making ministry, laying them on people, and they'd get healed, and demons would come out of folks. I don't know about you, but you wouldn't want to be around, you know, like my sweaty stuff. <laughs> Nothing good comes out of that. But here we see this unusual miracle. Boy, you want to talk about over-the-top power, right? If someone's sweatbands can heal somebody, anything's possible, right? So why then does the same Apostle Paul, a few years later, write these words to his protege in the faith, Timothy? In 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 23, no longer drink only water, but have a little wine for your stomach's sake and your frequent ailments. Why don't you say, Timothy, come on, man. 
You saw the sweatband thing go down. Where's your faith, man? Just believe God, you know, and forget about all this other stuff. No, what Paul says to Timothy is use the standard operating procedure, medicinal instructions that people would give to people out of these kind of elements, and God will bless that. God gave you a brain. Use it. You see, here we see it's a both and. If you're in a situation where you feel like only the miraculous intervention of God is going to save your life, your situation, pray for that. If you need a miracle, you've got it. But if you don't get a miracle, perhaps, maybe just perhaps, God is doing a deeper work within your life, teaching you to trust him when you don't see the miracle happening, teaching you to let your roots go down deeper into the soil of his marvelous love than they ever have before, where people can look at you and they can go, man, I understand a little bit more about your faith now. You're not just a sunshine soldier for Jesus. Yeah, you're holding on to him even though your world's falling apart. You see, it's a both and. And, and you know, again, if you don't understand that, you can get buffaloed by some really well-meaning people, even at a church like this. You know, as, as you all know, if you've been with us for a while, you know, Pam and I you know, walk through the Valley of the Shadow with a cancer diagnosis. And, and lo and behold, God miraculously intervened to allow us to be able to get treatment at the Mayo Clinic. I mean, the guy who did my surgery was the guy who invented the robotic procedure that was used to treat my cancer. But I'll never forget, it was like the week before uh, that we went up there. This guy comes up to me after the service and he goes, you know, I, I understand you're going up to Mayo, but brother, you know, you just need to have faith. I, I think you're taking a step away from trusting God by going up there. You just need to believe God that he's going to heal your cancer. And I looked at him and I said, well, I believe that God can use things like doctors to heal my cancer. And he just shook my head and he goes, you just don't have faith, brother. And I never saw the guy again. Never saw him again. You know, here's the deal. I went up to Mayo Clinic. I got treated and God used the auspices of that wonderful clinic and the skills and abilities and talents of that surgeon to heal me. I'm healed right now. Boy, last August, sweetest words in the English language. We sat down with them. They said, you know, Pastor Scott, you're cancer free. What would have happened if I looked at this guy and said, okay, well, I'm just going to believe God, cancel my surgery. Yeah, I'll tell you, I'd be a poor specimen right now. God does do the miraculous. No doubt about it. I can tell you too many stories about how God has directly and incredibly and supernaturally intervened. But he also intends for us to use his practical provisions. You know, the story is told of a fellow who was in Louisiana during flood season. And the creek began to overflow, and it, you know, the, the water came up to his front porch, and there he was on the front porch, and his neighbor came by with an ATV. He said, jump on the back of the ATV, I'm gonna get you out of here. And he goes, no, 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 I'm a man of faith. I prayed, and I believe God is going to deliver me here. Said, All right, suit yourself. Well, the rain kept falling, and the water kept rising, and pretty soon the guy's sitting on the top of his roof. And a guy comes by in a boat and says, hey, man, get in the boat, you know, we can rescue you here. No, 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 I'm a man of faith. I believe that God is going to rescue me. Said, All right, suit yourself. Well, the water keeps rising. The guy's sitting on the top of his chimney. A helicopter comes by, lowers down a rope, 
says to the guy, grab the rope, we can save you. No, 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 I'm a man of faith. I believe God's going to save me. Helicopter going, all right. Well, the water kept rising. The guy drowns. He finds himself standing before the Lord, and he's upset. He goes, God, you know, here I was, this man of faith. I believe that you were going to rescue me and deliver me. And, and lo and behold, you just let me drown out there. And God looks at him and goes, wow, didn't you get the ATV and the boat and the helicopter that I sent? <laughs> you see, it's a both and. Walking in faith means pray and look for God to miraculously intervene, but don't limit God. Look for the opportunities that he has already placed within your life to bring about healing, to bring about deliverance, to bring about the wherewithal, to be able to survive the most difficult trials because that's precisely what Jesus is telling these disciples to do. There was a time to trust God and to see him work without a net. And then there was a time to take the net with you. God is the God who works in all these areas of our life. And the wise person who sees trouble coming and prepares for it has not abandoned faith, gang. They're walking by faith. Lord, we thank you so much that your word shows us uh, in so many practical ways how you care for us in so many marvelous, marvelous and individually custom-designed avenues within our lives. I thank you, Lord, that your word says we're your workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which you prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That beautiful word workmanship, poema, a work of art. Uh, there are some times, Lord, in our lives where that work of art is going to be to display your direct, miraculous, and supernatural interventions within our lives. And we rejoice in you for those. And we don't want to forget them. Write them on the tablet of our heart. But we also realize that you provide the physical means, the wherewithal, to be able to meet our needs. And these are equally works from your hands. We pray, Father, that we would be wise in this life, that we would understand that you are a God who reserves the right to show us in certain circumstances how your great power is inexplicable, but also to show us how you work in wonderfully supernaturally natural ways to accomplish your will. You're the good shepherd, and you know exactly how to get us where we need to go. So, Lord, help us to realize that no matter what happens, no matter what situation or circumstance we find ourselves in in life, you've got it covered, and you have everything we need to not only survive, but actually thrive in these times of tri trials. And, Lord, even as we approach communion now, Boy, it reminds us of that beautiful truth in Romans chapter 8, verses 31 and 32. What shall we say to these things? All these distressing things, all the what-ifs and could-bes and buts of life. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who will be against us? If he didn't spare his only son but gave him up for us all, how will he not along with him freely give us all things? Thank you, Lord, that you are a generous God. Thank you, Lord, that you reserve the right to deal with us in such a way that we not only find deliverance from circumstance, but the development of Christ-like character. That's what you're all about. So, Lord, as we prepare for communion, help us to realize the awesome price you're willing to pay to bring us into the reality of a relationship with you. Prepare our hearts now as we prepare to remember what Jesus has done for us. 
In his name and for his sake, Father.